The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I want to welcome you this way. Thank you. I like that. Anthony's back. It's good to have him back. <laughs> Love that enthusiasm. Um, you know, if you're paying attention, you realize we're drawing near the end of our study in John. I mean, we've only got the rest of this chapter and one more, so probably another year and we're going to be done here. <laughs> I'm a little sad to think about closing it out. It feels like an old friend. We've been here for a while, but um, <clears throat> just be, be praying about that, please, uh, where we go next, all right? All right, we have been looking at the death and burial of our Lord in these final chapters of the Gospel. And last week we looked at the empty tomb, which assured us that the Lord had risen like He said He would. But so far, no one has seen the Lord. They just, the tomb's empty, He's gone, no one has seen Him. Well, that's going to change today and in the rest of this chapter. Now, chapter 20, verse 11 through 29, deals with three of our Lord's post-resurrection appearances in this Gospel. The first appearance is to Mary Magdalene. And the next three to the disciples. So, Yeshua appears to Mary in verse 11 through 18. Then to the disciples minus Thomas in verse 19 through 23. And then to the disciples with Thomas in verse 26 to 29. And finally to the seven disciples, including Thomas, who were fishing on the Sea of Tiberias in chapter 21. Now, these post-resurrection appearances of our Lord are very important because they're giving us evidence to the truth of the resurrection. And the resurrection is really important because everything about the Christian faith stands or falls upon the truth of the resurrection of Yeshua the Christ. It's one of those doctrines that you just can't do without. All right. Now, as we study all four Gospels, we see that Yeshua made about ten appearances after His resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. Now, He appears to her first, which a lot of people have a problem with because in that culture, a woman didn't have too high a standing. But He appeared to her first. He appears to other women then. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter and then John. Then He appeared to the disciples without Thomas. Then He appears to the disciples with Thomas. Then he appears to the seven disciples on the shore of Galilee, and then to 500 brethren, probably on the mountain in Galilee. And then he appeared to them over a 40-day span. (coughs) Excuse me. And what's interesting is that all these appearances are to believers. There's only one time he appears to an unbeliever. Anybody know who that person was? Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't an unbeliever after that appearance, but Saul is kind of you know, going about persecuting Christians and the Lord appears to him. And uh, that changes his whole life. And he becomes one of the greatest Christians, I believe, that's ever lived. Now, <clears throat> as I said, these appearances give evidence that Yeshua had in fact risen from the dead just as He said He would. This is important because you can't be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. That's what Paul says anyway in Romans 10.9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth 
that Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now the word confess here is the Greek word homologeo. And it means to say the same thing. In other words, to confess Christ is to say the same thing about Christ that God says about Him, that the Bible says about Him. It doesn't mean you just say, I believe in Christ. Hamalagao, to say the same thing. You're saying the same thing about Christ that God says about Him. And that's what the Bible says about Him. He says that we have to believe that God raised Him from the dead. The resurrection from the dead proved that Christ was who He said He was and did what He said He would do. In the Roman world at this time, Caesar had the power of death. Threats to Roman rule were mercilessly crushed. Everyone in the Roman world knew that the cross had a clear symbolic meaning. It meant that Caesar ruled the world. He ruled it with cruel death as its ultimate and regular weapon. The problem from the standpoint of the Roman rule is that Rome did all they could to put Christ to death on the cross. That's the power of Rome, and it didn't work. Christ rose from the dead, showing that Rome didn't have the ultimate power. God had the ultimate power. Rome crucified Yeshua, but God raised Him from the dead and made Him Lord. Now, we looked last week at verses 1-10, through which is basically the background of the story we're going to look at this morning. We saw that Mary went to the tomb very early. And when she got there, she found out the stone you know, was rolled away. It wasn't even there. So she ran, and she gets Peter, and she gets her brother Lazarus, and she excitedly reports to them, hey, the tomb's empty. But she's not really excited in the sense of, the Lord's risen. She's like, the tomb's empty. Someone stole them. She doesn't have a clue about the resurrection yet. All right. So Peter and Lazarus, you know, they're not going to trust her. They run back to the tomb. And sure enough, it's empty. They go inside, they find out there's grave clothes in there, but he's not there. Well, Peter runs in first, and then John gets there first, Lazarus, but he stays outside. Peter runs right in. Lazarus goes in, sees the grave clothes, the very grave clothes that he had worn. He'd been dead. He'd been wrapped up. He knew what those were about. When he saw the grave clothes lying there, it says that he saw and believed. So he's standing there in the tomb and he's a believer. He's a believer in the resurrection even though he hasn't seen Christ. But Peter is still pondering this. He's scratching his head saying, I, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand what's happening here. Well, after viewing the empty tomb, both men, says, returned to where they'd been staying. They were in Jerusalem st- staying there somewhere. They went back. So the narrative now returns to Mary Magdalene, who was the first to discover the empty tomb. Apparently, she'd follow the two men back to the tomb, but when they left, she stayed there. And our text says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. All right, let's talk just for a minute about Mary. Who is Mary Magdalene? Well, she is a woman, the Bible tells us, that Yeshua cast out seven demons, right? We see that in Luke. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been gone. Seven demons had gone out. Now, seven is the biblical number of perfection. So what's he saying here? I think he's trying to tell us that Mary was under total domination of satanic power. 
You know, she's totally ruled by Satan, and, and the Lord sets her free. Now, you can imagine from her perspective what that would do about her feelings towards the Lord. You know, she loves Him. The name Magdalene likely indicates that she was from Magdala, a city of the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. After Yeshua cast out seven demons for her, she became His disciple. And we learn from Luke, not only was she a disciple, she was a, a wealthy woman, and out of her finance, she helped support the ministry of Yeshua. Several women did. All right? Now, let me pose to you a possibility here. We, I mentioned this last week. <clears throat> Lazarus' sister Mary and Mary Magdalene may be the same woman. Okay? I think they are. I said last week that Mary was Lazarus' sister. Let me expound on that a little bit. The fourth gospel has Mary with her sister Martha at the rising of their brother Lazarus, right? Now next, still in the company of her brother and sister, she anoints Yeshua for burial. Next, now under the name Mary Magdalene, she's at the cross, still with her brother. Lazarus was there. But now he's not called Lazarus, he's called the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And finally, she's the discoverer of the empty tomb who runs and tells her brother, now called the disciple whom Yeshua loved, and Peter, if Mary is Lazarus' sister, and Mary Magdalene, if they're the same person, then the story moves directly from Lazarus to the disciple whom Yeshua loved and proves that Lazarus is the disciple whom Yeshua loved. There's a connection there. All right. Now, the fourth gospel has carefully paired Mary with Lazarus in certain episodes, and then it pairs Mary Magdalene with the disciple whom Yeshua loved in certain episodes. And I think this pattern can hardly be coincidental, all right? It must be an effort to tell us something. As I said, I think the reason that Lazarus focuses alone in the fourth gospel on Mary Magdalene, he leaves out the other woman, he just talks about her, it's his sister. And so he's focusing on her. Now, Mary Magdalene, as of recent, has become pretty well known because of the book, The Da Vinci Code. Now, you guys remember this? Wasn't that long ago. The book's written by Dan Brown. It was released in March 2003. It is said to have sold 60 million copies worldwide by 2006. That's a lot of copies. The book was on the New York Times bestseller list for 148 weeks. It's been translated into 40 different languages. In May of 2006, it was made into a movie directed by Ron Howard, starring Tom Hanks. Okay? The, the book is basically blasphemous. It's full of nonsense, but man, people loved it because they like that kind of stuff. All right? It has generated a lot of interest in Mary Magdalene. And, did you know this? There is an apocryphal gospel called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Okay? And this book has popularized that. This so-called gospel was a work of a heretical 2nd century Egyptian sect known as the Gnostics. I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard of the Gnostics. It presents Mary Magdala as the leader among the apostles. Okay, she's the leader. And she's the wife of Yeshua. That's what this book and that's what the gospel try to portray. Now, Gnosticism was a heretical movement active in the 2nd and early 3rd centuries of the Christian era. 
They deny the divinity of Christ. And they offer salvation on the basis of a complex secret wisdom available only to members of the sects. Now, by the mid-third century, Gnosticism had pretty much died out, but the strains of it reemerged in some medieval heresies. And personally, I believe that Gnosticism is still alive under the umbrella of preterism. All right, Because Gnostics believed that they were incapable of committing sin. Although they engaged in behavior that the Bible condemns as sinful. They said, well, it's not really sinful. And today, within the sphere of preterism, we have some that are saying, past A.D. 70, we don't sin anymore. And they engage in acts that the Bible condemns as sin, but they say it's not sin any longer. And they call people like me a legalist. Because I say we should live in holiness, we should follow what the Bible says and not commit sin. So if that makes me a legalist, then so be it, you know, because I think the Bible strongly teaches that we are to live holy, righteously in this present world. All right? All right. Now, the claim of this book is that Yeshua was not declared to be divine until the fourth century. In other words, you know, no one ever thought he was God until the fourth century someone came up with this crazy idea. That's ridiculous. The writings of Paul were written within a decade after the resurrection in which Paul clearly declares Yeshua's divinity and the Gospels clearly lay out, especially, John, as we've seen, the deity of Christ. The successors to the apostles in the late 1st and 2nd centuries also affirm the divinity and the humanity of Christ. They frequently quoted Gospel passages, they quoted Paul, they quoted Peter and James to prove the deity of Christ. So, at one point, the, the book's pragmatist argues that Mary Magdalene is referred to as Yeshua's companion. Now, they're getting this from uh, an incomplete line of the Gnostic Gospel of Philip. This was a 3rd century Gospel, and again, it's from a partial line of the text that calls Mary a companion, and they're saying, well, see, that word means, in Aramaic, that she's his wife. Okay? That's Dan Brown tries to prove that. The problem with Brown is he apparently doesn't seem to know that both the so-called Gospel of Mary Magdala and the Gospel of Philip are not written in Aramaic. And they're not written in Greek. Both are written in Egyptian Coptic. So he kind of shows his ignorance as he pushes this kind of stuff, trying to make these connections. The other lies raised in the Da Vinci Code that Mary Magdalene has married Yeshua of Nazareth and bore children to him. Now this heresy reemerged in the 19th century with a romantic novel by a French author named Renan, uh, which pictured Yeshua as the object of the physical love of Mary Magdala. Okay? Now, again, this is so easy to refute, but you remember Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, around four and, verses 4 and 5, Paul was defending his right to have a wife even though he didn't have one. He was saying, I have the right, you know, and he mentions Peter's got one, and, you know, other apostles have one, so I could have one if I wanted to. Well, if Yeshua had been married, wouldn't that be a much stronger argument to say, hey, Yeshua's got a wife, I certainly can have one. Well, he didn't use that argument because Yeshua didn't have a wife, and because this is Da Vinci Code, just a bunch of nonsense to put out to, you know, again, attack Christianity and destroy Christianity. But it really popularized 
Mary Magdalene. So <clears throat> I want to just bring that out because a lot of people are familiar with that. All right, let's look at our text. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. All right, the words weeping and wept here are from the Greek word klio, which according to Strong means to sob, that is to wail aloud. Um, this speaks of loud lamentations and expressions of grief, typically of mourners in the Near East. They weren't like us when we mourn, you know, just quietly. I mean, loud screaming and wailing and carrying on. This same verb is used of Mary weeping at her brother Lazarus' tomb in chapter 11, verse 31. And I want to make a connection there a little bit more in a minute, but <clears throat> why is she weeping? What? She, okay, she is heartbroken, but she's sad because she thinks somebody stole them. Now let's remember that Mary Magdalene witnessed probably everything surrounding the crucifixion. She was a disciple of the Lord. Now, unlike the guy disciples, the women stuck in there during the tough times, okay? She was aware of the mock trial that he had before Pontius Pilate, and she was aware that you know Pilate pronounced the death sentence. She was probably there when Yeshua was beaten and humiliated by the crowd. She was one of the women who stood near Yeshua during the crucifixion and was comforting Him. And like, you know, as a, from a woman's perspective, you can't even fathom what it must have been like. You know, she loves this man. He is her rabbi. She is following him and she's watching all this. She literally would have been traumatized, you know, from what she saw. She saw as they took his body and put it in the tomb. And she now believed her Lord had been stolen. It's just almost too much to bear. You know, she goes, you know, she's a most little shocked from the crucifixion, and now somebody has desecrated the body by stealing it. And he doesn't even get a proper burial. But for Lazarus, weeping is the sign that Mary has not yet come to the realization of the resurrection. She's not remembered the promises of the resurrection. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's a no doubt a devoted disciple of Yeshua. And yet she obviously does not believe or does not remember what the Lord taught over and over. Look at what the Lord taught His disciples. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. They didn't like that idea. To them, the Messiah was a victorious ruler He's talking about the suffering Messiah. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. But after three days, rise again. You know, they probably just block this out. Ah, that's not the kind of Messiah we want. You know, he says he's going to rise the third day. So as soon as he was killed, they should have been thinking, hey, wait a minute, what else did he tell us? Well, look again in chapter 9. And he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he'll rise. Hmm, why didn't she think of this? Again in chapter 10. And they will mock him. Boy, she saw that. Spit on him, flog him, and kill him. She saw all those things. And after three days, why didn't she put this together? And I'm sure there were other occasions in which he explained to them, I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be found guilty. I'm going to be put to death. But I'm going to rise again on the third day. 
They just found this too incredible to accept. It says, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. Now, this is the second reference concerning someone stooping to enter the tomb. This is the same verb used to describe the action of the disciple whom Yeshua loved in verse 5. Again, another connection between Mary and the disciple whom Yeshua loved. Now, let me ask you this. What happened to the Roman soldiers who were supposed to be guarding this tomb? I mean, in this gospel, you know, Mary shows up, the stone's gone, and the tomb's empty, and that's it. You know, where's the guards? What happened to them? Well, we got to go to Matthew to fill it in, so let's jump over there and just, you know, fill in the blanks here. Behold, there was a great earthquake. John doesn't tell us about that. And an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Okay? His appearance was like lightning. And his clothing white as snow. Now watch this. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The guards are there. They feel this earthquake. They see this angel rolling the stone away and is sitting on it and he's just glowing. Yeah, do you think they're a little bit scared? Okay, yeah, a little bit. Let's drop down to verse 11. While they were going, so the, the, the guards just took off, okay? There ain't no point in us being here. God's obviously involved in this thing. All right. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Okay, the the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they're telling them. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. Anything wrong with that story? How do they know what happened while they were sleeping? Here's what blows my mind, okay? Yeshua's telling them, you put me to death, I'm going to rise on the third day. I'm God. I'm going to come back from the dead. They put him to death. They seal the tomb. They put a guard over it. And all of a sudden, the Romans, there was an earthquake. There was angels. Instead of, the leaders, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, falling on the ground and crying out to God in forgiveness, they say, mm, let's bribe these people. Let's, let's figure out a way to... What is, how blind can the blind people be? Okay? This is, I mean, they, it's unbelievable. And they say, if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him. We'll keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That's just, you know, it's the craziest cover-up you ever saw. They do the opposite thing you think they should do. Now, why did the Roman soldiers go along with this plan? Why didn't they say, that's nuts? Well, they had no choice, okay? They had failed to defend the Roman seal, which was punishable by death. Now, they're going to have a hard time telling their boss, boss, it was an angel showed up. You know, he rolled the stone. We, we, just, you know, we couldn't do anything against this angel. No, they knew that story wasn't going to fly. Their life was in jeopardy, so they said, well, here's, we're going to get some money. That's good. You cover for us. Okay, we'll be happy with that. All right? So, all right, let's go back to our text. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Yeshua had lain, One at the head, the other at the feet. 
Okay, so she sees these two angels in white. Now, the Greek here for angels, angelos, it means to bring tidings, a messenger, especially an angel. Now, the dictionary says, by implication, a pastor. You didn't know I was an angel, did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This word angelos can be used of a human messenger. It can be used of a divine messenger. It's someone who's sent, okay? Well, these, the idea here of angels in white, white is representing you know, a divine, something you know, beyond human being, all right? Now, these messengers, evidently Mary wasn't picking up here. Well, I don't know what the deal is. Either she's so grief-stricken, she sees these angels and she's like, nah, don't get this, you know? Or they just look so much like men, you know, that she doesn't get it. Uh, she doesn't seem to get that they're more than human beings. But, you know, when you look at the other gospel accounts, you wonder, how could she have missed that? Okay? See, Mark 16, 5 states that young men dressed in white appear to the women. That doesn't tell us much more than we see here, you know, that they're dressed in white. Luke 24, 4 describes two men dressed in clothes that gleamed like lightning. I don't have any clothes like that, but that can be, you know, that'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? Matthew 22, I mean, Matthew 28, 2 and 3 that we just lo- looked at said they, they, uh, the appearance of lightning, their garments were like white, like snow. I mean, they kind of stood out, but here it just says they're in white and, and Mary seems to miss it. It says the angels in white sitting where the body of Yeshua was head lain, one at the head, the other at the foot. Now, obviously, this tomb that was carved out of the rocks was big enough to accommodate two man-sized angels sitting at either one end of where Yeshua's body was and the other. This is the only place in Scripture where you ever see angels sitting. They're busy messengers, so normally they're not sitting around, okay? But here's the thing. By this time in the Gospel, we should know John well enough to know that he's probably trying to tell us something else and just saying that these angels are sitting there. Anybody got any idea what John might be trying to, what's the picture he's trying to paint here with these angels? What would two angels sitting at either end of a slab about five feet apart make us think of? Okay, good. This, I think this would have no doubt made them think of Exodus 25 when the Lord gave instructions to build the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He identified a place called the mercy seat. That was a place where God met men in mercy. That's where the high priest would go on the Day of Atonement, sprinkle the blood to satisfy God. It was the mercy seat. It was of pure gold. It was inside the Holy of Holies. It was two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and had two cherubim on either end of the Ark of the Covenant. All right? Exodus 25, 16-19 says this, And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, shall you make them one of the two ends of the mercy seat. So here's this slab with angel on each end. He goes on and said, Make one cherub on one end, and one cherub on the other end of the piece of the mercy seat shall you make the cherub 
on its two ends. Now, I'll drop down to verse 22. It says, there I will meet with you. God meets man on the mercy seat. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub, there will be an ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about that, and I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. I think Lazarus wants us to grasp here that the death and resurrection of Yeshua constitute the final and ultimate sacrifice where God is appeased. And here's a picture of the mercy seat. The sacrifice has been made. There's the angel sitting there. A picture. God is satisfied. Sacrifice. The final sacrifice. The only one that really counted. The one that all other sacrifices pictured has been made. They're sitting there. At each end of this slab that the Lord had been laid on. Now the angels say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Okay. The angels asked Mary, Why are you weeping? Now, they're not trying to get information. They're not, it's not like, Oh, Mary, why are you crying? What's wrong? It's like, Mary, why are you weeping? I mean, it's like, Look, the tomb's empty. Why are you weeping? That's not something to weep about, Mary. The inference, he, the angels are trying to get her to see. There's no reason for crying, Mary. She's weeping because she's misinformed. Okay? That's why she's crying. She doesn't understand what's going on. She says, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid Him. Now, Mary used similar words in verse 2 with some adjustments. Let's look at them. This time she says, my Lord, instead of the Lord. And the plural, we don't know, because there was other ladies there, now is being replaced with a singular, I don't know. I don't know where he's at. It's my Lord. And I don't know where he is. Now her answer revealed that she still thought someone had stole the body, whether grave robbers, someone, she doesn't know who, but she feels he's not getting a proper burial. She still seems to have no thought that, hey, remember he told us the third day? Well, it's the third day, and it's like, it doesn't seem to compute. In Mary's mind, this is the darkest moment of her life. She's a devoted disciple to Yeshua. She loved Him. And now, not only has He been crucified, they've taken His body. I can't even give Him a proper burial. But Mary's tears, Mary's great sorrow were based on false assumptions. She's crying because she thought Yeshua was dead. She thought that his body had been stolen, and she thought she's not going to be able to find the body to give him a proper burial. If Mary had known the real reason the tomb was empty, she wouldn't be crying. See, the very thing that Mary was crying over was the thing she should be rejoicing over. Has that ever happened to you? The very thing you're crying, you're upset, you're brokenhearted over is the thing that should be causing you to rejoice. I always think of another man this happened to, Jacob. Their father Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. I laugh every time I read that. 
Because I know the story. I know the rest of the story, right? Joseph wasn't dead. Simeon wasn't dead. He was coming back. Benjamin, nothing was going to happen to him. No, listen, Joseph was reigning prime minister in Egypt. He was bringing his father and family there so he could provide for him. These things were not against him at all. They were actually all working for his good. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. So often, we don't get it. Believers, I think we often suffer needless sorrow because we forget that God is sovereign. Even over the evil that men can do, He's sovereign. Think of the irony of this. Mary is weeping because the tomb is empty. I mean, Christians rejoice over the empty tomb. She's weeping because it's empty. It should have been the cause of great joy, but instead of looking at it from the divine perspective, she's looking at it from the human viewpoint, she's looking at it from the right now, and it's just grieving her. And it's almost laughable if it wasn't so sad. But we've been there. Things happen to us in our life, and we're just, Lord, all these things are against me. We don't know the plan of God. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the future holds. I was there 21 years ago when we started this church. When I started this church, I felt like all these things are against me. I really did. I mean, I felt like I was done, basically. I was 43 years old. I felt like, okay, ministry's done. This doctrine is never going to fly. No one's going to buy this. We're all done. And no, it's been the greatest ride of my life. Met the, had the best fellowship, met the best people. I just, you know, it is, but I just, that's how I felt. I told you the story. I was underneath my house working on something on the crawl space, and me and God are having a debate under the crawl space. If anybody could have heard it, they'd have said, something's wrong with that guy under there. <laughs> but I came out of there saying, okay, I'm going to let God be God and, you know, trust Him. Because believers, the greatest thing that God wants for us, the thing that blesses His heart is when His children trust Him. And listen, I know when everything is coming up roses, it's not a big deal to trust God. It's when your life is falling apart. And when you walk into work and you're around your co-workers and you're around people who know you, and everything is great because your life is great. They're like... Who wouldn't be praising God when everything's... But when your life's falling apart and you're still giving God the glory, then they're saying, maybe there's something to Christianity. Maybe there's something to it. All right, let's move on. Having said this, she turned around and saw Yeshua standing there. But she didn't know it was Yeshua. Let me ask you this, believers. Why does Mary turn around? She's talking to two angels. Now, obviously she doesn't get that they're angels, but something about it must have been a little different. Why does she turn around? Did Yeshua make a noise in the tomb? Were the rocks creaking as he walked in? It's, in? it's carved out of solid rock, okay? I don't think he's making any noise. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers who ministered in the 4th century, he answers the question this way. He says, when the angels appeared, I mean, when, the, when Yeshua appeared, the angels bowed before him and worshiped. So Mary sees these angels, and that, I'm like, I read that and I'm like, man, I think that's right on, you know. 
Because Yeshua appears, what are these angels going to do? They're bowing. And she's like, what are you guys bowing at? And she turns around and there's Yeshua. But she didn't know it was Yeshua. Why didn't she recognize him? Oh, there's all kinds of explanations here. Okay. She was crying all day, and so she couldn't see right, and so it's all blurry, and she didn't know it was the Lord, right? It's early morning, you know, she hadn't had her coffee yet. What, whatever. I've heard all these dumb things, okay? Some say it's because she believed he was dead, and so when you see someone that you don't expect to see, you don't recognize him. And I somewhat understand that, okay? Because I've had people ring my doorbell and I answer the door and I know them well, but I'm shocked because they don't live here and why are they here? They don't belong here and it takes you a second to put it together. All right? That happened to recently. The Hofers showed up at our house and I knew they were coming, but I had Kathy answer the door. So she pulls the door open and it's like, uh, took her just like a split second, like, why are you on my doorstep? You belong in Key Largo, not on my doorstep, you know? So it, it took her a while. So I, I can understand that, but, you know, we're not told in the scriptures why Mary didn't recognize him. And we see this often in the resurrection narratives. Yeshua is not immediately recognized when people see Him. You know, the couple on the Emmaus Road, they're walking with Him, talking with Him. They have no clue who He is. But I think the text in Luke tells us why. Luke 24, 16, But their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. The NASB says, But their eyes were prevented. In other words, there was some kind of blinders put on so they didn't know who it was. The ending of Mark's Gospel says this, after these things, He appeared in another form to two of them. I think Mary didn't recognize Yeshua. My take is because she was prevented from recognizing Him because He appeared in another form. Somehow, she just didn't know Him. Now, here's what the Bible tells us about Yeshua and the resurrection and His body. It says, it can be touched and handled. We know that. John 20, 27. Thomas is going to handle it. Mary handles it in our text. Luke 24, 39. We're told that the body bears the marks of the wounds that were inflicted upon him before he died. John 20, 20, verse 25, verse 27. It can cook fish. John 21, 9. It can eat fish. <laughs> Luke 24, 41 through 43. All right? On the other hand... Yeshua's resurrection body apparently rose through the grave clothes, John 20, verse 6 and 8. It appears in a locked room, verses 19 and 26. And sometimes it's not recognized. Now that's what I know, okay? Because that's what the Bible says. And I think anything more than that is kind of speculation. We don't understand a lot of things, all right? But Mary turns to him, and for some reason she just doesn't know who he is. And Yeshua says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Does that sound familiar? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll go get him and I'll take him away. Yeshua's first recorded words after the resurrection are, woman, why are you weeping? (laughs) Very first words out of his mouth. He's repeating the angel's words. Now again, Yeshua isn't asking the question to gain information. Oh, Mary, what happened? What's wrong? He's like, woman, why are you weeping? The tomb is empty. I'm standing right here in front of you. And perhaps by the by, he says, whom are you seeking? He means something like, what kind of Messiah did you think I was? That I'm still dead carried off somewhere. 
Did you not understand all, everything I've been teaching you? Who are you really seeking, Mary? Because I'm God. Supposing him to be the gardener. Why a gardener? Let me see if I can make a theological connection here. Eh, maybe, maybe not, but you know, John's always trying to push us to think further. Who else was a gardener? Anybody got an idea who another gardener might have been? How about this? Uh, I was going to say, who's the very first gardener? Adam, right? Adam's the first gardener, right? He's the tender. He's the tiller of the garden. The first Adam couldn't protect his bride. He wasn't willing to sacrifice his life to protect you know, the garden and his, and his time there with it. And he let Satan corrupt him. Well, the new Adam has died for his bride. He's broken Satan's power. And, you know... This is a, John is always kind of making these things here. The gardener. Let us think about that. Who is this gardener? All right. Well, Mary says to the gardener, if you have carried him off, this is a first class conditional sentence. You know what that means? Since. Since you've carried him off, where is he? She's not questioning. Maybe you didn't make. No, it's since you've carried him, just tell me where he is. Okay. You know, she may be thinking, well, okay, this is Joseph's tomb. Or Joseph of Arimathea. He's a rich man. This tomb is in a garden. Joseph probably owns the garden. Joseph maybe has a gardener that works there for him. And so he says, we've got to stick Yeshua in a tomb right away because we've got to get him in before the Sabbath. Okay, that's over. Maybe he had his gardener go get him, put him somewhere else now so I can have my own tomb All right, when I die. And so she's just thinking, well, maybe he just moved him. And she goes, if you just tell me where he is, I'll go get him. It, just, it shows her devotion to Christ. I'll go get him. I'll, I'll take care of it. You just tell me where you put him. And Yeshua said to her, Mary. And she turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Does Mary's immediate response call to your mind any teaching of the Lord's? Calls her name. She responds. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Mary is one of the sheep and when he calls her name, it's like, oh my word. Her eyes are open. That's my Lord because she's one of the sheep who hears the voice of the Lord. The people aren't his sheep. They don't know him. They don't hear that voice. But she heard it. And she turned and said to him, Roboni. Why does she turn to him? She's talking. If you read the text, she's having a conversation with him. You know, if you're the gardener, you took him away. Where is he? And then she turns to him. I'm like, in the mid-conversation, did she get bored and turn away? What's going on here? Why does it say she turned to him? <laughs> Maybe this is John trying to tell us something else again. The word turned here is the Greek word strepho. This word is used by the early church for turning away from the former life to a life of faith. And I'm like, you know, turning to him just doesn't kind of fit in this narrative. She's talking to him. But it fits if John's trying to tell us something spiritually, she turned and realized He is God. He's the risen Lord. 
And John might be trying to tell us, at the sound of his voice, she came from disbelief to faith. This is my God. Well, Mary responds by calling Yeshua Rabboni, which in Hebrew means master or teacher. It's a position more dignified than a rabbi. The great scholar Gamaliel was addressed as Rabboni rather than rabbi. In the first century, it's also a title appropriately used to address God, the great Rabboni. Now, D.A. Carson writes this, what I found really interesting. He says, in rabbinical Hebrew, the term is regularly applied to God. See, so convert really fits here when you understand what Mary's saying. She's saying, you're my God. She catches, she gets, he, she hears the voice and she turns it. It's just like this book, as you read through, you got to keep track of where you're going, but it just builds on one another. You know, it just builds on everything we've learned so far. In the expression rabbi of the world, that's what, that's what Ramona means, a rabbi of the world. And this prompts Hoskins, and he gives the page here, to argue that although it may be used in reference to a human rabbi, it is never used in addressing a human rabbi. In other words, we can't find a text used where this is addressed to human rabbis. Mary's address therefore becomes a form of address to God, not unlike verse 28. In verse 28, it's where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So Mary, when she hears that voice, as one of the sheep turns and says, it's my God, it's my Lord. Mary has just swung from the depths of despair. I mean, she's about as bottom as out as you can get. In one second, now she's like, now I know why the tomb's empty. Because you're alive. He's risen. And, and it all just comes flooding to her. And what a change has taken place. Now, we stressed this before, but the fact that Yeshua first appeared to Mary rather than Pilate or Caiaphas or to one of his male disciples is very significant. And I think the Lord's trying to tell us something here. That a woman would be the first to see him is an evidence of the narrative's historicity. Okay, Because no Jewish author in the ancient world would have invented a story where a woman is put with this much authority and responsibility. And I think you know Yeshua may have showed up to Mary, first of all, simply because her devotion to Him. She's there first thing in the morning. She is desperately seeking for Him. She is in love with Him. Maybe it's because this is one of the very, very few people four people, three if you count two of them as the same, that are specifically said to be loved by the Lord. John eleven five. Now Yeshua loved Martha and her sister. That's Mary. And Lazarus. Lazarus and his sister had a very special relationship with Yeshua. So he's the first, she's the first one he appears to when he rises from the dead. Verse 17 says, Yeshua said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, my God, and your God. Now, it would seem that what's happening here is Mary had probably fallen to her knees in the traditional Jewish form of greeting, someone very special, and she had her arms wrapped around his legs and she's just clinging on to him. Now, this reminds me of another scene with Mary and Yeshua back in chapter 11. So let me go back to chapter 11. And you're going to have to think about this for a while, but 
I think if you compare this text to our text, there's so many similarities, and I just think it's not a coincidence. He's trying to connect these two. Here, now, when Mary came to where Yeshua was and saw him, so we got Mary and Yeshua in both texts, right? She fell at his feet. That's the picture that we're getting in our text. She's falling at his feet. It says she's weeping. This is the same Greek word, kleo, that's used in our text also. Now, the phrase, where have you laid him, is found in both texts. Here, Yeshua's asking it, but in our text, Mary's asking it. Same exact words. It just seems to me that Lazarus is trying to tell us that his sister Mary is Mary Magdalene. And Lazarus is the disciple whom Yeshua loved. I just think the connections are are way too strong to be overlooked. Like I said, look at the language in this text. Look at the language in our text. Compare the, the similarities are just very, very strong. All right, so Yeshua says to her, don't cling to me. Wow, books are written on this. I'm, I'm not kidding you, books are written on this. The translators render this very different ways. Uh, A.V. says, touch me not. Bad translation. Don't, don't put your finger on me. That's not what he's saying. Stop clinging to me, New American Standard. Don't hold on to me, NIV. Now, the tense of the imperative is present. And this grammatical construction conveys the thought of ceasing to do something that's already happening. In other words, stop clinging to me. She's already doing it, so he's telling her to stop. Believe me when I say there are so much, so much written on this, you know, so many different perspectives, and I mean the arguments go into such detail, what this means, and you know, this means that, and that. I'm not going to skip all that stuff, because most of them are just plain nonsense. If you're interested, go look them up, there's a lot of them, but let me tell you the one that I think just makes sense to me, all right? Yeshua wasn't saying, Mary, don't touch me. I'm something special and you can't put your hands on me. Because just a little later, he tells Thomas to what? Touch me. Put your finger on my side. Touch my hand. Touch me. Well, what's happened in between those two things? Nothing. He is saying, Mary, you can't cling to me in a physical sense anymore. And rather, he says, I haven't ascended to the Father. Well, what he's saying is, I'm going to ascend to the Father. And so you can no longer cling to me in a physical sense. That's the only relationship they've known. All right, They've known each other. They could be together. They could talk. She could touch him. She could cling to him. But no longer, Mary, because I'm going to the Father. I haven't done it yet, so you can cling to me right this second. But I'm leaving. Our relationship is changing. It's going to be spiritual now. The only contact you're going to have with me is going to be spiritual. See, Mary had thought that Yeshua was dead and gone. She thought, I'll never see him again. And so when she finds out that he's back, first thing she wants to do is make sure he's not going anywhere else. And so she's clinging to him. Maybe, maybe not, because she doesn't seem to be too aware of what he's taught so far, but maybe she's thinking of John 14, 28, where Yeshua says, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. Well, she thought, he went away? He's back! Yay! We get to hang on to him. No, that's not what that scripture meant. He hasn't gone away yet. All right? But she might thought he's back for good. And no, he's trying to explain to her, Mary, it's not going to be this way anymore. I'm not going to be walking with you in a physical sense, talking with you, teaching you. I'm going to the Father. I haven't ascended yet, but I'm going to ascend. And when I go, 
We don't have this relationship anymore. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Right? They walk with Christ. They talk with Christ. They had the physical. You know, they're no longer. The idea that the resurrection has opened the door to a new spiritual relationship between Yeshua and His disciples. He's not going to be there to physically feed them anymore. To explain, to answer all their questions. Physical contact is no longer going to be appropriate. It won't, it won't be possible. And I think that's what he's saying is, don't cling to me. I think this also is a jab at the pre-Gnostics. The fact that Mary was clinging to Yeshua shows he's not a phantom. And that's what the Gnostics taught. He, wasn't, he, didn't, he just seemed to be. He wasn't really a man. They taught he wasn't raised. He wasn't crucified really. He wasn't raised really. And I think it's kind of maybe a jab at the Gnostics. All right. He tells Mary, go to my brothers and say to them. Now, Yeshua not only first appears to Mary, He also commissions her to carry the good news to the disciples. As I said before, this is really striking given the women's position in that both Jewish and Roman culture of the day. A woman's testimony wasn't, couldn't, wasn't even accepted in court. You know? So it's kind of weird that, you know, Mary, you go tell them I'm alive. That doesn't fit the narrative, okay? Now, this is the first time in the Gospels that Yeshua called His disciples, my brothers. Brothers is from Adelphos. Literally means from the same womb. In the Greek, it's designated those who were born of the same mother. So He's saying, these are my brothers. I think Mary's announcement that she's to make here, to tell of the brothers, is prophetically found in Psalm 22. Now, we've talked about Psalm 22. This is a death psalm. We talked about this earlier in our study. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's what Mary's going to do. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. She's going to where they're gathered together and she's going to say, He's alive! And calling the disciples' brothers, Yeshua is fulfilling this prophecy. Go tell him I'm ascending. This is present tense indicating I'm in the process of ascending. He's going to be around for 40 days, but he's going to disappear. He's going to the Father. He says, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Now, Yeshua doesn't say here, our Father. Because Yeshua by nature is eternally the Son of God, whereas we're sons by adoption. His incarnation as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, He could call God His Father. He and His disciples though, He and us, we have a different relationship to the Father. But, what He wants us to see here is we're sons of the Father. And the emphasis in Yeshua's statement was on the privilege that the disciples now share with Him because of His death, resurrection, and ascension. We're sons of God. He's our Father. He's our God. Yeshua tells His Father that this relationship of closeness to God was one that had opened up to them as well. God is your Father now because of what I've done. And it says, Mary Magdalene went, she did just like she's told, she quit clinging, she let him go, and she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that He said these things to her. So Mary goes, she does as she's told, she goes to the disciples and she tells them. Now Lazarus, in this text, doesn't tell us how the disciples responded to the announcement. But Mark and Luke do. Mark says this, She went and told those who had been with Him, but as they mourned and wept, 
But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they wouldn't believe it. Mary, told you to stay away from that stuff. Quit smoking that stuff, Mary. They just, they did you know, Mary's all excited. She's carrying the good news. And no, they don't believe her. Okay, Luke 10, 24-10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they didn't believe them. These are the disciples of the Lord. We already went over the Scriptures. He told them, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to raise the third day. They didn't get it. They didn't believe it. Someone they know so well, one of the fellow disciples, a woman disciple, comes and says, I've seen him, he's alive. And they're like, no, Mary, we just can't buy that. They just didn't believe. Now, as we said at the beginning of this message, believing in the resurrection is a necessity to being a Christian. Well, this is all going to change, all right? In the rest of the text, the Lord's going to show up to them and they are going to believe, all right? Now, Thomas is going to take a little more persuading maybe than the rest of them, but they are going to believe. All right? And it's important because as we said, you've got to believe in the resurrection. Now, hopefully, because we're reading through our Bibles regularly, at least once a year, right? We're all reading through them. Hopefully, because of that, we're not going to be like Mary and the disciples. We're going to know what the Lord taught, and we're going to believe it. See, you can't believe what you don't know. And so as you read the Bible over and over, you come to these things, you know. And when this happens, you know, if it would, we'd have been there, we'd have said, wait a minute, I know what the Scripture says. He's supposed to rise the third day. And because we're reading through our Bibles on a regular basis, we're also going to understand that no matter how bad our circumstances may look, God is still sovereign, and we need to trust Him. Because believers, that's what He wants, is our trust. In the darkest of times, when the tomb seems empty to you, <laughs> it's not empty because someone stole it, his body. It's empty because he's alive. You know, it's all a matter of how you look at that tomb. That empty tomb was breaking her heart when it should have been causing her to dance with joy. Man, we've been there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. Lord, just a beautiful text. Mary, just a a loving disciple, Lord, that we see so much of ourself in her, Lord. Help us, Father, to trust you in the darkest of hours, even when we're hurting so bad and we can't understand why. Help us understand you're sovereign and you're loving. And we're your children. You're our Father. Help us to trust in you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for the opportunity to be together today. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh-oh. Questions. <laughs> a statement and then a question. Um, I think a good case could be made that maybe they were married here because obviously he explained everything and how it was going to go down. But she didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff is being facetious here, okay? He is being facetious when he says there's a good case made. <laughs> For those of you who didn't hear that, Jeff said there could be a good case made that they actually were married because she didn't understand a thing that he said. Okay, so <laughs> we, we do know how that works. There, there seems to be a language barrier between the sexes. Every time I think I got that language figured out, it evolves. Okay, that language changes. So, all right. Question-wise, um, the part about him rising, I mean, it's 
So you don't think that he rose after he sent her away to tell them that he waited until 40 days later to finally rise? Because a lot of people interpret that that she sent him, he sent her away to go tell them. He rose to the Father, been glorified, came back, and that's when the people could start. Right. Right. Uh, that's, you know, that Jeff brings out the fact that, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, he said, don't touch me because I haven't arisen. Then he had to go to the Father and then he could come back and then they could touch him. Uh, well, not, you don't get that in this text between here and Thomas. Okay. You don't get that. There's nothing in there that says he went to the Father and came back, but he tells Thomas, touch me. Put your fingers in my, you know, hands, my wrists here, put it in my side. So that makes me think, no, I, I, that's not what he's talking about there. I think he, by saying, I haven't ascended, he's just saying, I'm going to go to the Father, Mary, so this relationship is not going to continue in a physical sense. Right. And, and again, as I said, there's a ton of different views on that, okay? I'm just sharing with you mine. You don't have to buy it. Matter of fact, it's free, so you can take it or leave it, all right? Stan? I have a twofer, if I could remember it both. Uh, remember the old saying, you know, you're so heavenly minded and you know earthly good? Yeah. I think sometimes that should be flipped. Earthly mind. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's a stupid saying because if you're really heavenly minded, you're going to be plenty of good earthly, okay? It's just, that's, that, that's a bad saying for, I understand the condition they're trying to, you know, that your head's always in the clouds, you never do anything here. But if you're really heavenly minded, then you're going to be understanding I'm an image bearer and everything you do is going to be productive here and now so second the other one was uh which gave it really a different flavor to me anyway you know like when you explain woman why are you weeping it seemed like if they would have put exclamation points in there instead of question right (laughs) yeah there's no punctuation in the greek so you know that's added by the you know translators and stuff yes door his timing is perfect for everything. And even, even I think when he wants to know certain things, it's still, I mean, exactly how he wants to know it, <coughs> too, I think it has something a little bit to do with still his perfect timing because a situation can be put in front of us, you know, similar to another situation three years down the road, mm-hmm. and it could be his timing for us to understand it. I mean, we can, we can, I feel like we can get some type of perspective out of it, but as far as where he wants to be at a certain time and our thinking and our growth, I mean, that's just my own. Well, I agree with that. I think there's no doubt. I mean, I think that, you know, the Lord has his timing and, you know, we all learn things at a different pace and something that we're clueless about next year. All of a sudden it's like, wow, I've been reading this Bible and all of a sudden I see this and it makes sense to me. You know, there's no doubt about that. Okay. I think in this text, though, like you said, is that divine would you say that divine, uh, that he was showing to her, to tell her that divine perspective, you know, it, it, was, it was, she she was off, but he wanted to show her how to get back home. Right. You know, the, 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 the thing. Dora, do you have a question? I do have a question. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you, look, are you looking for backup? <laughs> Maybe, and I'm just talking on my nose. I'm a logical, you know, expert. But you know how Eve was considered the fault of fallen man. She's at the apple, and so she spiritually died. Now we have Mary Magdalene, first woman that received that eternal life by suddenly going, Ah, my
perhaps we will redeem them. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think, you know, there's, you, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think there's, you're onto something there. I think the fact that he appeared first to women is very significant. Culturally, but also I think he's trying to tell some. You know, women had a low place in that culture, but he's saying, you know, she's the first one to see. She's the first one to carry the news of the risen Lord. And, you know, women were second class citizens there. And he's trying to, you know, teach the truth of Galatians that there is no distinction between men and women in in Christ. Okay? Now, <laughs> I gotta, you know, today when you say that, you have to you have to back that up by saying. Spiritually speaking, in our relationship to God, there's no difference between men and women. There always be difference between men and women. But what he is saying is, you women can have the same relationship with God that a man could have. That was unusual before. Okay, And, and I think the Lord is demonstrating that by saying, my first you know, appearance is to this woman, you know, and she's going to carry the message. I think there's way more there than I understand. Let me put it that way, okay? Gary? I think she's, uh, like I said, she's on to something because, like you said, the fall took place in the garden and the redemption, mm-hmm. the, the resurrection took place in the garden. Calling the women back. There's there's so much in that text that, you know, the gardener, you just read over that, you know, and then all of a sudden you start these two angels sitting there. You know, the more, it just... It's like, wow, the Word of God is really cool. You know, and the more you dig into it, the more exciting you get about it. All right, I got a, a question. I don't know if it's a question yet because I haven't read it. Um, from Bob Krushank, he said, regarding the Gnostic preterist, the idea that sin doesn't exist past AD 70 seems disproved by Revelation 22.15. That verse speaks of fornicators in the new heavens and earth. If sin no longer exists, it would be impossible to, find, to define fornication. This logically demonstrates that there is still sin post AD 70. I wish these antinomians would drop the label preterist. Well, Bob, I could not agree with you more, but you know, it just people, here's let me say this here, I guess. I, I'm I'm working on a message. I, I want to deal with this full blown, but within the umbrella of preterism harbors all kinds of false teaching. And some people have the idea that you believe the Lord returned in AD 70. We're brothers. Let's join together. Well, there's may, way more important things than eschatology. Okay? Let's start with soteriology. All right? Let's start with some other areas. So we got to be careful that we just don't buy into this. And yes, it's sad and it's doctrinally obscure that these people think that we don't sin anymore. And listen, they're Gnostics. They are because they think we, we can sin and it's okay. You know, they put a grand label on it. It's just, that grieves my heart. It really does. Because it's damaging to Christianity. It damages them as image bearers to say, you can look just like, and you can do any kind of sin you want, and God doesn't even care about sin anymore. The sin He died for, now He no longer cares about it. You go out and do it all you want. It grieves me, people. It just grieves me. Gary? Well, that just brings to mind, in the song, when the song was saying, uh, laid on Him all the sins, and it just hit me today that just how incredibly righteous he was to take the sins that had been committed up to that point, sins to our point, and the sins of the future. I mean, that's 
uncancelled. It's like the sand of the sea that stars in the sky. It descends beyond measure. But how righteous was he that covered all of that? Amen. Amen. And now he's alive. Mary knows it. And we get to the following weeks. We're going to see that he's going to show up to the others. And they're going to say, oh, maybe Mary was right here. You know, how about that? All right. Um, we're going to close with that. And we're not going to sing a closing hymn because the food's here. Is that right? See, I said to have it delivered at quarter till. Look what time it is. Huh? You did? Okay. They just don't get it. All right. Um, listen, it's a rainy ugly, nasty day out there, so we thought instead of going somewhere to lunch and dragging in, let's just hang around and fellowship, so that's what we're going to do. Everybody's welcome to stay um, until the food's gone, then you have to leave. Huh? Yeah, w- listen, when we're done here, um, ladies, if you just kind of congregate somewhere out of the way, we'll get the tables out, we'll get them set up, and we'll eat, all right? So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. I thank you for this text, Lord, and just the joy that I had to study it out and see so many Amazing things, Father. I just, I marvel, Lord. I marvel at your awesome greatness. Thank you for who you are. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that honors you. I pray, Lord, that we would not be like Mary in the sense to just doubt. But we trust you, Father. Thank you for your grace to us. Amen.